Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia and I'm super honored to welcome Paula Singlerova in the Green Minds podcast. Paula is the Director of Sustainability at ESG Book, one of the service lines of Arabesque Group. In her previous role at Arabesque Asset Management as a Head of Sustainability and Stewardship, she was responsible for all sustainability-related activities for the fund, from the sustainable investment approach, proxy voting, engagement activities, to management of external relationships with organizations like UN Principles of Responsible Investment or Climate Action 100+. She's interested in the relationship between sustainability and finance and completed her dissertation on the subject of green equity indices. Paula holds MSc Finance from Burbank University of London and BA International Relations from Queen Mary University of London. She's passionate about sustainability and conscious of it in her everyday life, but believes that we need capital markets to solve some of the issues we face as a society. Welcome to Green Minds Podcast, Paula. Hi, Claudia. Thank you for having me. It's amazing to have you here, given your background and everything you've you've achieved so far. So could you maybe walk us through your professional journey to date? You obtained your MSc in finance and what led you to pursue a career in uh, sustainable finance and how you kind of got there where you are? Yeah, sure. So actually, I think the story goes back to my undergraduate degree, which was in international relations, as I've been always interested in this in this topic. And I think it's quite relevant for, for sustainable finance as well. So as I studied international relations at Queen Mary, I didn't intern with the European Commission and the European Parliament, but I guess I realized that wasn't really the path for me. So I ended up in consulting, which I guess is a good place to start your career if you're quite unsure where to where to go. And I work for a small consultancy in the reinsurance and insurance space. And I liked my job, but I wasn't really it, you know, I didn't feel like it was aligned what I actually wanted to do long term. So I decided to apply to university. I took a gap, I think it was like three, four years, even more maybe between my undergraduate and my degree in master's. So I wanted a something a bit more quantitative to complement the international relations degree because that's quite qualitative and essay heavy. So I applied to Birkbeck for the MSc in finance. And I guess at that point I wasn't, I just wanted something a bit more, as I said, a bit more quantitative, but I wasn't, it wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to go into sustainable finance. But very early on, I had this light bulb moment when I realized that sustainable finance is a thing and you can actually get a job in this area which was perfect for me because it allowed me to combine my passion in my personal life. So I'm with, you know, with my skill set as well. So I guess like many of people, I guess, who are listening to this podcast, I, I don't know, I'm, I like to think I'm quite aware of, you know, everyday actions, secondhand clothes, cycle to work, recycle, use all of these reusable cups and water bottles. But I guess as, as we mentioned in the beginning, it's not enough. I don't think it's enough to actually bring around change and we need more systematic solutions and then and and hence very early on for my degree i started to focus all my projects on things like the green or esg indices and renewable energy but when i graduated there were no jobs in esg <laughs> so, and i guess this tells you a lot about esg and and now there are so many so i'm hoping everyone who wants a job in esg will get one so when i went out when i finished my uni and i was like great i'd like to get a job in esg there were none they were either very like niche jobs and for you were climate researchers you needed a phd very good programming skill, which I don't have, or it was quite senior, like head of CSR for corporate. So it's been great to see that the landscape, the job landscape now has changed quite dramatically and there has been increase in ESG as a, and there's a demand after ESG skill set. Um, so after I so saw, well, what did I do? Well, I was, uh, I was still in my old job. I did my degree while working full time. 
but I wanted to change and I found a conference. Maybe this could have been an inspiration for anyone looking for a job in sustainability. I just found a conference on Eventbrite. It was hosted by King's College. They had a sustainable investing society. It was free to attend and they had speakers and the lineup was pretty, pretty impressive. So I, I signed up and I attended and one of the speakers was from Arabesque. And I just approached him after the after the panel being like, hey, I know of Arabesque, I know what you guys do. I'm after an ESG job. Let's have a coffee. And it and it worked out. So I guess that's how I ended up in sustainable finance. Yeah, that's pretty impressive and a good good, good strategy. You were at the right time at the right place, if, if, if you know what I mean, right? <laughs> so maybe now the people who would approach them would be like tens or, or, or you know, hundreds <laughs> of people would want a job in ESG, which is a good thing, I, I'm, I'm sure. And so you mentioned, so you got your job in ESG, but it wasn't at, at ESG Book where you're currently now. Um, so maybe before we go back to what you what you did at Arabesque, could you please tell us what you do now? And I mentioned in your intro that you work at ESG Book. So could you maybe walk us through what ESG Book does and then what your role as Director of Sustainability entails? Yes, of course. So ESG Book is a, well, it says in the name, is an ESG solution company. We're a tech firm. And I guess in a, to make it very simple, we provide financial institutions and corporates with the tools to make better informed decisions around sustainability. So the focus is mainly on data. We are around 200 people. We are four years old, backed up by VC. And my role as director of sustainability, I'm sitting sort of in between various teams. And I guess, again, that tells you a lot about sustainability because it's, uh, yeah, as I said, it's, it's, it touches on many areas within firms. So as part of my jobs, for example, I'm building on my experience working in an investment house, working with our business development teams and helping our clients to apply the tools that we that we provide to them within their investment strategy. Also, I'm working with the product office when we're reviewing the suitability of some of the products. And recently, one of my new projects, which is a, something new for me, it's a new challenge. We're trying to complete, we're working towards the B Corp application. So that's the certification, sustainability certification you're probably all very aware about. So this is more on the CSR side. It's something new, but uh, yeah, I'm learning, learning a lot as we are trying to complete the assessment. So it's a I guess a bit of everything every day can be quite different. Mm. And you mentioned that you do kind of provide products to make kind of sense of the ESG data. So I understand that it's kind of some kind of a, you mentioned you're a technical technology company. So I assume there is a lot of where behind it, right? So what exactly does the solution do? Does it like gather all ESG data into one place from different sources to make sense for the companies? Or can you maybe describe a situation when a client comes to you, some kind of case study, let's say, of a, of a solution you provided for, for some client? Yes, of course. I guess our main three types of offerings, well, our, our raw data, the analytics that you build on the data, and then we have a platform. So I guess one one of our big, biggest differentiators is the largest raw data offering. But like what we've seen in the market is that there's a move away from single ESG scores. I guess when you think about ESG score, it's just a it's you applying your methodology, your IP on a set of raw metrics. And while this is a really good start, many many investment houses are now getting into the more sophisticated stage on sustainable investing and they want the underlying data. So we would, for example, provide our client a quant asset manager, think about quant asset manager, they roll data feed and they are looking whether there's a correlation, whether there's alpha and they're trying to implement it throughout their investment process. 
The next stage could be analytics. So things like the regulatory solutions. We have a lot of, I think one of the key themes for ESG for 2023 is regulation. We have a lot of regulation coming into force. Think about, for example, in the EU, which is the forefront of a lot of the new development, the R, sustainable finance regulation, which is which going to be which can be quite challenging for investment houses when they're in terms of reporting. So again, we would provide them a type of regulatory solutions where they're able to map their holdings against these regulatory frameworks. And the last one, which is my favorite, it's our platform. It's a SaaS platform and it's free to use to everyone where we provide data for free. So anyone can log in and have a look how Apple, for example, scores on ESG. It's, it's our place where we just store all of our data it's free to have a look. You could also do like portfolio screens. And we, yeah, so we're also working on that. We host several disclosures and frameworks so people can map their data because it's getting a bit confusing again with all the disclosures. So yeah, these are sort of the three main things, the raw data, the analytics, and then the platform where you can have a look how your holdings are scoring. Yeah, thanks for explaining this. And I also checked on your website, you have, I think this is separate, but kind of is a result of your work. It's like top 100 ESG scorers, right, which you update. And that's also really nice to see for someone who works with ESG that can also kind of give you a sense of, of where these companies are from your perspective. Um, so moving on back to Arabesque, we mentioned that ESG is associated with Arabesque asset management. What does this relationship work with Arabesque? Could you maybe walk us through that? Yes, of course. So ESG book was previously called the Arabesque S-Ray. And it's a spin out from, from the Arabesque group. I guess our, the story of Arabesque goes over 10 years ago. Well, actually, we can take it back to the financial crisis in 2008 to Barclays Bank. The Barclays Bank had to sell their asset management business. They sold it to BlackRock. That's how BlackRock became the largest asset manager in the world. And then there was a five-year non-compete where the bank could not create their own asset, man asset management. So the CEO of asset, manager, asset management, Arabesque Asset Management, Omar, was at Barclays and he was tasked with creating this new asset manager. And he just went out and worked with universities, tried to identify the next trends. You just don't want to build a book for the sake of creating one. And what they came back with was the two trends of sustainability and technology. And sort of these are the two things that Arabesque was built on. So initially, so there was a management buyout as Barclays was hit by a LIBOR scandal. So you think about it, you're trying to build a sustainable house in a large bank that was facing a very big reputational scandal. So it was the best to take it out. And I guess the idea of everyone wants to go sustainable, the issues come of how to actually apply it and the practicalities of running a sustainable fund. So initially, the fund was buying data from different providers, like you would know the large names, Sustainalytics, MSCI, etc. But uh, there was a growing, I guess, frustration with the lack of comparability. We all know that, the, that there's a big diversion between the ESG ratings. So there was an idea to build this in-house since it was a quant fund. And this tool was created, was named, the project named S-Ray, which means sustainability S-Ray. And what happened was that it grew so much that the partnership of the of the of the firm realized that there's a commercial opportunity. So they decided to take it, to take it and make it into separate companies. Obviously, it has to be separated because you're also selling the data to other asset managers. And we rebranded into ESG Book. We have a new CEO, Daniel Clear. We've I had the B series just last year, mid last year. And yeah, it's new. It's a tech company, so it's a very different. One on one hand, you have asset manager, the clientele, the work you do. Is different when you have a tech startup, which I'm find myself in right now. 
Yeah, I think also our course, the climate change management finance, will have a couple of lectures by Daniel Clear. So he'll come to campus. He's brilliant. Yeah, I hope this podcast isn't out by then that he has spoken, but either way, he will be there. There's also another notable name when it comes to Arabesque, which is George Kell, the chairman of Arabesque, who kind of, I like to say, indirectly coined the term ESG when he wrote the speech of Kofi Annan at the 1999 Davos Economic Forum, which called for taking into account all stakeholders and investment decisions, not just uh, the financial aspects. And he's also, the George Kell is also the founder of the United Nations Global Compact, the world's largest corporate sustainability initiative. So Uh, For you, how does it feel working for an organization with this type of history, with such a person who was at the birth of ESG, if I can say so? Yes, Georg is very inspirational. I think he also worked with Kofi Annan on this famous speech. I don't know if everyone has read it, but if you haven't, you can Google it. It's quite short. It's very punching and inspirational. So yeah, it's, it's great working with him. Because you get to hear firsthand these stories from Davos. And I, we're now recording this podcast in January. So Davos is happening right now. So the timing is, is interesting. But yeah, you go back to the foundation of the modern sustainable finance. And I guess the nice thing about Georg is that he's also very, very approachable. For example, we have a group, WhatsApp group, and he's part of it. And he's quite active because we were asking him as the as the web report this report came out we're asking him about opinion and he was very engaged but i guess another very notable person that we used to sit on our board is the late professor john ruggy um, he developed these a set of principles for the un the guiding principles on business and human rights they're also called the ruggy principles again he was a, a good friend of so yeah it's it's great i think it gives the firm a lot of credibility Yeah, yeah, no, definitely sounds very interesting to have this engagement with him and to hear his opinions. So let's go a bit deeper into first Arabesque and what you kind of did there, because I believe you have a lot to share. So as I mentioned, you during your time at Arabesque Asset Management, you were head of stewardship and sustainability. Now, I'm sure that people might be aware, but maybe not to such a detail as someone who, is, who has worked in it. So could you please describe what stewardship is and what activities you undertook within that role? Stewardship is about the ongoing governance and oversight of companies, in this case, within your within your portfolio and, and with an aim for long-term value creation for your customers, for, for wider stakeholder group. What it means in practice is investors are using their influence over the current, you know, of the current investees, or you can also uh, engage with policy, depends who your stakeholders are. I guess an example is then you have, a, for example, you as an investment house believe that there should be an equal representation of men and women on the board. So board diversity is your key thing. You do a review of your portfolios and you notice some companies are not meet, meeting these targets. So you go out and you engage with them. I guess the big thing about stewardship and engagement is that it's very outcome oriented, you have a clear goal that you're going after when you engage with these companies. So that goal is something that you keep in mind throughout the engagement process. Usually the way you set these engagement themes, it's something that you sort of believe as a, as a company. Like for ESG book as a company, we believe in, you know, mainstreaming and sustainability, making it more transparent through data. Maybe if you're an impact fund focusing on social issues, that's sort of how you how you would phrase your engagement activities. But mm-hmm. I guess in asset management, again, every day was a bit different. And in the in the engagement for, for, for Arabesque, it was slightly different to other investment houses because this was a quant, quant fund. So when we're designing our stewardship strategy, 
we didn't really have many blueprints to look, look, look out for. We were actually working with the P UN PRI of just creating a case study of how to, what, what do you do if you're a quant? Being a quant house means that the rules of your, engage, of your investment process are vested in some sort of systematic algorithms. So it's not our portfolio manager that sits down and says, actually, Apple didn't, full, I don't know, Microsoft didn't fulfill our engagement thing, so we're going to divest. This would be up to the algorithm. So we had to think about slightly, slightly different approach of how to, how to engage with companies as opposed to with fundamental houses. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say to for listeners that to clarify that there there's at least as I'm aware of the there is the fundamental approach and there is the quantitative approach, right? Yeah, it's like um, a Bible for some people. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so so you mentioned also engagement and I'd like to stay with it for a bit because you led Arabesque's first engagement campaign. And as you mentioned, engagement is like one of the tools that you can used to impact portfolio companies' environmental performance. And in your case, this campaign was concerned with the improvement of emissions disclosure standard of six European tech companies. Could you please explain, explain the context of this campaign and what you believe that the successful engagement campaign is? In the beginning of an engagement, you, as, as I just, you just mentioned, you would set some goals. So there you have a clear outcome, what you want to get out of your engagement campaign, whether it's on, you know, trying to influence what the company does. So I, what I think should constitute for a successful engagement is when one of these goals that you set out is fulfilled. If it's not, obviously you have tools, you you can divest, you can re-engage, you can proxy vote, and you sort of escalate to the next stage of engagement. But as mentioned before, so as a Arabesk is a quant house, meaning we did not have this option of divest because it's not up to the portfolio manager, it's up to our investment process. So, but that doesn't mean that Quant houses should not part part a role in this wider engagement ecosystem. We believe, even though we're a quant house, we should we should we have to do something, right? So one way, one of the routes that we took is the collaborative engagement. So these are engagement where you you join other investors. Um, the idea is that the more you know, the more money usually because it's AUM based you have behind the calls the more pressure you can put on the corporates to change we were working with the UN PRI the principles of responsible investment they they have quite a few campaigns we also worked with share action which is an amazing UK based NGO that is very active in the engagement space and also with the climate action 100 plus which is engaged engaging with approximately the top 100 now is almost like 150 big, biggest amateurs. So we would co-sign these campaigns, but we also wanted to have one on our own. So being a tech company ourselves, we look at the tech sector. So tech sector is quite interesting because it's quite under-engaged. Tech sector is not your usual suspect when it comes to emissions, when it comes to being a big, big polluter, but tech sector often has larger like allocation in the investment portfolios. We saw that there's also one of the reasons why a lot of the ESG funds have underperformed last year is because they have a large allocation to tech sector and tech sector that was a dip and then suddenly the funds, you know, the performance went down as well with them. So and another thing that was crucial for us was data. As a as a as a quant fund, your your investment strategy is built on information and on data. And we noticed that there's a lot of companies that have good reporting, but they have data gaps. So if there's a data gap, we would not be able to consider it in the investment process. So we approached six EU tech companies and asked them to disclose, just improve their disclosure and on emissions, because we believe emissions are 
they're like the basic data points that all of the companies should be disclosing. So we went out there and we tried to engage with more investors, as I said before, like it's engagements are often more powerful if you have more investors joining you. We published a campaign on PRI and managed to get over 900 billion in, in backing, which was, which was great. Then we send letters to these companies. You send it to in, in investor relations or to the, well, you address it to the board and then you try to engage with investor relations at, and engage in a dialogue explaining why we believe this is important. We had a really good, I think we had a really good response and engagement. Five out of the six companies have now in, in, improved their emissions reporting, which is very positive. With the last one, there's one outstanding item on scope three reporting, which we have to re-engage on. But yeah, overall, I would say there was a positive, positive engagement. And for us, it was our first engagement campaign that we ran. So a really good experience for me personally as well, to manage the whole process from beginning to an end. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that was, must have been challenging. And also when you mentioned scope three, people who are kind of aware of the in, this, in the climate space, they always get like, oh, scope three. OK, yeah, OK, that's re- usually the problematic now. Now there is also a debate about scope four, kind of the avoided. Yes. Emissions. I feel like that's going to be like maybe next year or the, the year after people are going to be talking about that. I wanted to ask, oh, I wanted to ask about kind of behind the scenes or when you mentioned dialogue with engagement, can I imagine it as a, as in like you sit down with these companies and you talk or or how does it look in practice? It really depends. So usually the first step would be sending a letter, you address the letter to the board of the company. Realistically, who picks it up would be the investor relations team or maybe a sustainability team and so on. And then it's, we always try to engage companies on the call. Sometimes, you know, things get lost in a language barriers, translation and unwritten communication. So I, I, I personally think having a call is always nicer. But we only had one of these six companies that were like, okay, let's let's jump on the call. All the other ones responded by written email. And the one I, I think it was again a very positive one. It was an investor relation team for a Belgian company. And they said they were very pleased because they have not never received an investor engagement letter before. And they used it as a they leverage it to increase their budget and their resources towards sustainability. Apparently, signal to the board and to the management being like, look, ESG is now a thing. We need to be more aware of our reporting processes and receiving the letter from us actually helped them, which which is which was a positive one. Some of the other calls I attended with other companies, they can get, it depends, it can get quite defensive. You know, they brought six people, you're six people and you, you go point by point by point and it can get a bit argumentative as well. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. Because, uh, you know, when you when you study it and when you like read about it, you, it kind of can sound a bit abstract. But now, nice insight also with the, the Belgian firm. Yeah, that's super interesting and a great feedback also also for you, I think. And then I would like to continue with the stewardship debate. You mentioned that if engagement is not successful, then you resort to proxy voting. So maybe let's explain also what proxy voting exactly means. And then I have this fact from the from a new MSCI report that in the 2022 proxy season, more investors voted against corporate climate strategies in than in 2021 because it was kind of misaligned with global temperature targets. And there has been also examples where proxy advisors advised some companies to not vote for climate targets because they were not scientifically backed, according to, let's say, SBTI targets, science-backed target initiatives, for a bit of background that it's not that when there is proxy voting, it's always like, yes, let's, let's vote for this climate change strategy. It can also be a negative one, but maybe 
just come let's come back to what proxy voting actually is how it looked like when you worked at arabesque and yeah if you have any examples so that we can imagine it a bit better yes maybe a comment on the msa report I think this is not, this should not be surprising that we've seen more votes around climate because we see, we see more and more commitments around net zero. So asset managers, asset owners are committing to net zero targets and this is going to trickle down to the investing companies because the footprint of your footprint is the footprint of your portfolio. So you're going to put pressure on the companies that you invest in to also address this because it's, you know, the, the, yeah. those are your emissions. The paradoxical thing was that the the investors voted against the climate strategies. Oh, again. As in, like they were not aligned with the the latest science kind of thing, you know, that that kind of goes against the logic that you just explained. Which also would be my intuition that there is like more and more votes, and I'm sure there are more. It's just there are more proxy votes in general. It's just that interestingly, there is also more kind of against climate strategies because companies come up with strategies that maybe are not feasible or realistic or they set their base years weirdly or something like this is the way I understood it. Yes, I can actually, sorry, I misunderstood this. That could, that could be possible because I think investors are looking at the net zero targets of the companies. And I think one of the big things that you monitor is the offsets. If you're if you're if your entire target is based on offsets, you're committing because you're just gonna and you're not gonna actually do anything with the decreasing the emissions in the real world just taking the net zero targets again then yeah i think it's uh, it's a fair enough that you that you have to challenge it as an investor in the dialogue with the company yeah. and with the management but i guess maybe back to proxy voting so as a shareholder you have the right to vote on on company matters this happens usually on annual basis so at least once a year companies have annual annual general meeting and where they where you receive a report about their results and you review the report as an investor, as a shareholder, and you have a right to vote on various matters. So thinking about the matters they usually vote on, they're not as exciting as people imagine it to be. A lot of it's in about re-elections of board members, about remuneration, about just approving bonuses, approving like audit or new auditors. But what we've seen recently in the recent years, the increase of these shareholder resolutions, meaning that shareholders themselves can also suggest um, additional items to be voted on. And these are quite interesting. And when you picture the report that you receive from one of the proxy advisors, usually the top the top items you vote on are all of these items that I just mentioned. But then on the bottom, you have a line that's called shareholder resolutions. Now, these vary because they're proposed by the shareholders. These vary of company by company. If you think about the big firms such as Amazon, they have quite a few. That was right about, like, for example, the right to unionize. There was a big one about Amazon packaging. Maybe you saw it. They use more and more, less and less plastic. That was a that was a target that was proposed. So these votes are quite interesting. And how it works in practice is that the more equity you own in the company, the more votes you have. And I think this is why why is it important to take everything that BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street do, Norges Bank as well, because these are important players. They have important votes. When you see it, when you look at the list of top shareholders, these names are always there. So their vote can actually move the needle. I mean, there are also cases, for example, there's an activist fund called Engine Number One. Maybe you guys heard about it. They own less than like, it was like 0.0. 2% of Exxon, the oil giant, 
And they managed to run a very successful engagement campaign with them, even though they had a very small stake in the company. So it depends. But in practice, it means the more, yeah, you, the more votes you get, the more equity you have, the more votes you, you, votes you get. One thing to, to note here is that these votes are actually not legally binding. It's important to remember here. So if a company, it's up to the company to then execute. But it's a very important signaling for, for the company that this is what the shareholders want from you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. And looking at the time, I'm now going to move a bit more on like the ESG itself, given that you work now at ESG Book and probably you are more engaged also with this topic. But before that, one last question about the kind of asset management. Can you just briefly describe kind of the sustainability elements of the investment process at, at Arabesque or how, how did that work there with sustainability? Yeah, sure. So it's, it depends, again, the way you you include sustainability in, in your investment process depends on the asset manager. We would, for example, have quite a few screenings in the, in the universe. So you have a pool of companies, it's called the investment universe, and you screen them for suitability and you use various sustainability criteria. Whether it's ESG scores, we use, for example, United Nations Global Compact score as well. You can have additional flags for fossil fuels, for tobacco, etc. So you would in the first step, we would create this sustainable investment universe. Then we would apply our investment strategy, which is run by AI. And then you also include the, and then we would also include the sustainable, some of the sustainability metrics in the portfolio optimization, where we would look for various ESG data that we optimize on as well. So that's very simply how, very quickly, how you would integrate it in some of the strategies. And now does Arabesque now use, make use of ESG book? For this yes. or it's internal <laughs> no 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 so ESG book so when you think about it so our best asset management is a client of ESG book just like other asset managers so yeah there's a legacy obviously and but yeah it's a, it's a client relationship okay Great. So now coming more towards ESG, this environmental social governance framework or objectives or whatever you call it has kind of skyrocketed, although it's been there for, let's say, almost 20 years because it was kind of coined at the 99 Davos Forum or 2004, people say different years. But I mean, we can see that in recent years, it's really skyrocketed. I do have some numbers about the ESG book that it provides solutions to 30,000 companies world processes 15 million data points daily, has $120 trillion collected asset held under management by ESG book clients. So this really shows the demand. I can I would say the success of ESG book really shows the demand for ESG and kind of how it's skyrocketed in the recent years. And, but there is also kind of this comes at a cost, let's say, or there's been also this term floating around called ESG alphabet soup, which means that ever grow there's an ever growing amount of standards, frameworks, ratings, providers, indices, and all that. So what is your perspective on ESG? You know, is it a broken idea? The Economist had a piece last summer where they said ESG should only be it should only be the E. Some people say it's a pure risk management tool. Or what what is your opinion on ESG? I mean, absolutely what you just mentioned that this, this, this ESG was before once niche concept, but now it's absolutely mainstream. Everyone is now green. Everyone is green and sustainable. So I don't know, we either fix the climate change or there's something going wrong in the world and there's a lot of greenwashing. And I think that's the latter. So the criticism that the industry is facing and the skepticism about ESG, it's healthy. And I think it's, it's justified 
because ESG is bundling a lot of concepts under the acronym and umbrella of ESG. And one thing that ESG is not, it's not, for example, a moral moral framework where people confuse it with some sort of ethical investment. That's absolutely not the case. So we see ESG as a framework, as a framework that helps you evaluate companies' externalities, things that they are not captured by default in in the in the financial statements when you it's uh, and that's why it's very nice complementary data set when you think about the financial data it's well I would say backward looking and you see the disclaimers past performance not indicative of the future performance but how the company is going to be performing in the future that's that's function of the management of the strategy of the company and often you can get this type of information from ESG data so yeah I think it's a it's an important data set that adds a new additional dimension to investing that's just you know but yeah it supports the risk and return I think it's not a moral it's not a moral framework now how you integrate it in your investment process that's what makes a difference and that's based on the investment philosophy of the asset management I think where we are going to go and where the sustainability movement is going to go is more towards the impact because I think that's what people often confuse with ESG but these are two different concepts yeah, no, thank you for clarifying that. We had a, a guest from an impact investing platform, Carbon Equity, Jacqueline Fanandenda, in the two episodes back. And she exactly explained like this this difference between ESG investing or like ESG and impact investing, uh, where like if you put money into an impact fund, like it moves the needle from A to B. Whereas with ESG, it's a bit of a different lens that you put on those investments. It's not saying that one is better or worse. It's just that it's different and there needs to be a distinction made. So thank you for reinforcing that. And I, I definitely agree on this with you. And one I other aspect, yeah. Yeah, maybe just, to, I, I think the way like to think about impact is to think about pro-profit philanthropy. You're trying to address a specific environmental or social goal. In ESG, you integrate these external information in, in your investment process. But when you think about practically the funds and the, the for example, the there's so many ESG funds because you can also, you and I, we can very easily buy an ESG ETF. But with impact, I often think about it more as a private long-term projects where you and I, unless we go through a platform, can't just invest in an impact impact solution. It's not as retail-oriented. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's this changing actually, now. But yeah, uh, changing now, exactly. Well, it's well, changing now. Like platforms like Carbon Equity, actually, you... I mean, you do still need, it's not like exactly, it's not like an ETF that you buy, but you you still need a certain amount of, of cash to to invest, but it's coming to afford for more and more. So that's that's positive, I think. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about is also the cost of ESG data. I also saw your podcast, like ESG's books, ESG books podcast, Quick Takes. There was one episode on the cost of ESG data because the cost of the data has not dropped as fast as the demand scaled up. So you would think that uh, it would be easier. I, maybe it is easier and easier. But how do you see the issue of, of you know, as a part of a technology company that provides ESG data, I kind of think your mission is to tackle this issue to a certain extent, given that you provide a solution that kind of helps companies make sense of their ESG data, because one of the costs is also kind of spending time to to find the data, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you see this issue? Yes, I actually recently read an article that spending on ESG data is growing over 20% each year. So in 2021, ESG data became a billion dollar industry and it's a very fast growing. I think there now, I don't have the exact number, so I'm going to have to Google it, but it's hundreds, 
hundreds of different data providers. And to be honest, this is just thinking out loud. I don't think the price is going to drop anytime soon. It depends. The, obtaining the actual underlying data is quite a laborious process. It depends how you collect the data. If you use human like you and I sit down, analysts, sort of like the traditional equity analysts, or you have data collecting people, and that's that costs a lot of money, right? Because you have big offices, thousands of people reading company report, and often the devil's in the detail. So, and, com and I, the challenge is that with ESG, you're often turning this qualitative concept into something quant. So having that human analyst, it's a good and a bad thing. You also introduce some type of biases, but yeah, it takes a lot of time and money. But often, I mean, we also have some AI tools and people. So if you use just AI tools, for example, if you're an ESG data company and you're just scraping the internet and the news, because I saw companies like that, and you don't take into account the company reports at all, I think you're able to push the cost down. I don't think the ESG data challenge is going anywhere. If you ask, if you attend any conference, any podcast, and people ask, what is the biggest challenge in the ESG industry? Everyone says the same. It's, it's, it's the data. It's the data. And it's a concern for a lot of people. Having said that, I'm hoping and I don't want the ESG data challenge to take away from the real action that we need to have around sustainability. Because with the, as the amount of data is growing, but it's also noise that is growing. So navigating around the raw data and making sense and creating meaningful information that's what's challenging. And the analytics, that IP, that costs, again, someone's time. Yeah, but this is something that you mentioned in the beginning when you were describing ESG book, that you are kind of on this mission to, to help with making sense of ESG data as well. So if any company is listening to this, any asset manager, make sure to, <laughs> to contact ESG book. But one of the things I also remembered from the podcast was that um, such a practical thing like that usually this qualitative information is in a format of like a PDF. Like that made me really thinking like this is this practical thing when you're reading it, you can't just like download it with numbers or like download it from somewhere because it's like also very impractically included in the company's reports. So that was also something that I remembered could be a yeah, challenge. I think like, for example, NLP, natural language processing, AI tools, yeah. getting better and better, be able to, again, read these reports quickly and extract the relevant information yeah, it but is it's big it's a yeah it's large data sets i think people need to be aware this is not a precise science but if you have billions of data points there is always statistically you're gonna have a you know something's gonna go wrong at some point or like not wrong i mean there's gonna be discrepancies so people and whether it's human due to a human error or ai tool nlp missing something it's bound to happen and it happens it's more, but it's more due to the size of the data or also the, the way it's, I don't know what else could there be, you know, like the, the there is missing data just, or, or, you know. Yeah. And there's missing, there's absolutely this missing data. We have, comp, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons why we have gaps in data, things like language barriers, there are dominant languages where, but there are languages that just, you know, you haven't trained your AI model on, like you don't have an analyst that speaks. I don't know, specific language. So yeah, you have like English, German, I don't know, Spanish, but maybe your your Chinese data set is not as, you know, as robust. Again, time, uh, resource, and it's just introduced costs. Yeah, but as you said, as you said, it's there, but it shouldn't make us, make us forget why, it's, why ESG exists in the first place. So just an important reminder that every industry has its challenges. So this is one of ESG and 
we just need to work around it. Okay, we are moving towards the end. I'd just like to ask one or two questions before we finish. So just briefly, because policy is also moving along with this spike in demand in the sustainable finance industry, and you mentioned the R, the Sustainable Finance Directive, but how do you see the role of other kind of sustainability, materiality frameworks like SESB? Are they helping make some logic of ESG? Does it help in any way? Does it make pose more challenges than it than opportunities? How do you see this? It, I'd say it helps. SASB is a brilliant, so is the Sustainability Accounting Standard Bond. It's a really good starting point for when you are trying to calculate your materiality. You know, materiality is a very important concept. It, it's sort of like a relevancy filter on what matters the most. And they did this very rigorous process and they have a study. I guess from a practical point of view, this is, for example, a, quite a static document that doesn't change, whereas opposed to in real life uh, with companies, material, something that's material today, maybe it's not material in six months' time. So for investment purposes, for example, ESG book, we also have this sort of like dynamic materiality calculation where you try to get, we try to assess what is financially material so you can integrate the data in the investment process uh, in a more sort of meaningful way. But there are other frameworks, for example, the ISSB is working on the global baseline, which I think that's going to be a very important, it's going to be a very important milestone because there are so many different disclosure regime. And I think one thing that we forget, and at least I think us on the investment side, that this is a big burden for the companies themselves. A lot of these companies are small companies. They simply don't have the resource to do all of this reporting. And they have 50 investors sending them different questionnaires. So having sort of like a baseline and people agreeing on what are the key sets. I think that's going to be that's going to be important. One another thing with with all of these regulation is that they're coming in a challenging order. For example, asset managers are with the SFDR now have to report from June principal advice indicators and on on their sustainability metrics if they were to classify themselves as sustainable. But the regulation asking the corporates to report is only coming afterwards. So it's like an, you know, so it shouldn't be the other way around. You ask yeah. the corporates to report and then the asset managers, which I think also it's 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 good and bad. There's a lot of market initiative now to push, like we did with our engagement to ask the, because you have to engage with the companies to get the data as a, as a fund house. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing this perspective. And uh, you, just the last comment on materiality. That's a great definition that you offered that right there. I'm going to have to write it down afterwards because materiality in the sustainable finance industry is very, very important to know and understand. And now we are in the one directional materiality of ESG in the majority of cases. But how do you see that shift to double materiality influencing the landscape? So just to explain, double materiality would mean that we not only take into account the way that climate change or, or ESG affects the company, but also how the company affects the world or the other way around? Kind of both ways. So climate impact on the company and the company's impact on climate. Yes, I think this is a very important concept. This being very, it's one of the key pillars of the European Union's action plan of sustainable finance, this concept of extending the materiality to wider stakeholder. We can think about it from the inside out perspective. So how does your firm impact the wider stakeholders, society or of the environment? I think it's a very useful principle and for companies to get them think more broadly about their responsibilities to the, you know, to the wider stakeholdership. So in practice, this, this concept is translated again in the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, which we keep talking about SFDR. And we see it in this principal adverse indicators, these are the sustainability factors that we have to report on on 
what are the neg negative impacts that, that are taking place as a result of your investment? So it's the, again, the inside out perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for clarifying that. And that was, I think I'm, I'm, I'm happy we ended up with the kind of formal part of the discussion on this, on this debate of double materiality, because as you say, it's one of the most important things. And, and I'm sure we could speak more and more about this, but I do have one last question for you, which is also kind of a personal one. And I'm super happy to have talked to you. You are, you are a super successful young woman and, um, I'm sure many people would, would like to go in kind of your footsteps in terms of career. So what would be your best advice? for young people aspiring to move in a career in sustainable investing? Um, to follow your interest or passion. I think it's um, as long as, for example, spoke with someone who's super interested in cybersecurity in the sustainability space. Cybersecurity is a huge space if you're interested in water specifically or in finance. ESG is so broad that you can, yeah, there's just plenty of opportunities. I think one thing to note is just don't get disencouraged by lack of experience. It's just such a dynamic and fast moving um, just, you know, area. It's a moving target. So I guess the willingness to learn and just the right attitude can just take you very far. And now no one has like, there's very few people that have like 30 years of sustainable investing experience. So I think just going out there and just believe in yourself and what you're passionate about. And I guess what helped me was the, it's just the network. I know this is such a cliche and everyone says that based on my experience, it helped me to get the, the first job. And I like to think that people in sustainability are friendly. Yeah, and go, biased, to, but, go, uh, go to conferences, people. <laughs> go to, <laughs> yeah, go to conferences. so there's so many. There's uh, also things like green drinks happening in London. Also the net zero, there's a net zero group in London, which is really great for meet people. Just meeting like-minded people and learning because I think there's a lot of opportunities right now. It's a good time to be in sustainable finance, the growing area. Yeah, that, that's perfect to hear and very encouraging. I'd like to thank you, Paula, for being here and having this conversation. I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you so much again for having me and I hope you enjoy the podcast.